All right. Check, check. Let's wrap up our conversations, find our seats. It is great to be here this morning. Um, thank you, worship band. You guys, you guys rock this morning. Man, it is, yeah. Sometimes you get up to preach and it's like, I don't know, the worship band already did it. Like, let's just, let's, <laughs> let's just go home. They nailed it. Um, <laughs> um, my name is Lee Shepherd. Uh, I'm one of the leaders, uh, gospel community leaders here at Fellowship. Um, I have the privilege to um, preach from time to time. And um, we are deep in the middle of Mark. Um, for those of you that have been following along, um, we're halfway there. So that's, that's good news. Um, yeah, we're going to be in chapter 8 this week, and we're just going to dive right in, and we're going to read from verse 1 uh, down to verse 21. In those days, when there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And the disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away, and immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, Twelve. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Um, I just feel like you have to ask the question, like, what in the world is happening here? Um, if, you're, if you've been following along, you know that a few weeks ago, uh, it feels like we did this already. 
Um, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Um, and, it, and it feels like a similar story. Um, he takes bread, he takes fish, he breaks it, he gives thanks, and the disciples pass it out. Um, and then suddenly we get to this story, and it's like the disciples have no idea what's going on. Like, why, why don't they get it? Um, and you have this weird story with the Pharisees asking for a sign, and he's not going to give them one. You just think, he just fed 4,000 people. Like, what, what do you guys want? Um, and then this crazy conversation in the boat with the disciples. Um, he's try, Jesus is trying to tell them something deep and spiritual, and they're going, oh, man, we forgot bread. Uh, I don't know. Like, this is, um, what, what, what in the world is happening here? Um, and I, 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 I hope that this morning um, we can go deep into this and, and, and take a look. And hopefully there's a way through it um, where we can see, what, what is Jesus up to? Um, and it really helps if we, if we look at the context of Mark, if we look at kind of what we've gone through and, and where we're headed. Um, I think the, the big picture is we're coming up on the end of the first half of Mark. So Mark is split pretty evenly. Um, the first half is all about answering this question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And here and there throughout the first eight chapters, you have these little glimpses of people getting it for a moment of seeing Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do and then the second half is Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem going to the cross preparing for resurrection Um, and the second half really doesn't make sense if you haven't grasped the first half and and answered the question who is this because if Jesus is just some guy he's just a teacher, then the second half of him going to Jerusalem and dying on a cross doesn't matter. And so we have this buildup and we have this um, moving towards resolution. And next week, Chad's going to talk about this man that's healed. He can't see. And I don't want to give too much away. Um, (laughs) But he can't see. And then he can kind of see. And then finally, he can see completely. And we have this same story of the disciples, uh, the story after that. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Jesus says, you are the Christ. And for that moment, their eyes are opened and they can see the truth that's right there in front of them. Um, And so we want to ask the question, like, how did they get here? Because this part, they obviously are not getting it. And so I want to look back um, to chapter 6 and look at kind of the last two chapters that we've gone through just real quick to give us a framework to hopefully understand a little bit better what's going on here. And so if we go back, um, I think this is going to be on the screen. Um, I'm going to go through a little quickly. The verses won't be up there, just kind of the context of what's going on in the verses. Um, And so... um, Back at the beginning of chapter 6, I feel like this is the beginning of one long story that stretches out towards chapter 8. 
And so in chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth. He's speaking the word of God, and his family and his hometown reject him, and he has to leave. After that, the 12 go out, and out of 12 people, a movement grows, and the nation is blessed. We go on, and an evil king, in this case Herod, he hears about the growth, and he responds with violence. Then Jesus leads the people out into a secluded place, and they are miraculously fed with meat and bread. After that, Jesus comes down to his disciples, walking on the water, and says he intends to pass them by. And for a moment, they can see him for who he is. After that, it moves on. There's a discussion and there's disputes about the law. And then two weeks ago, we looked at as they were about to go back into the Decapolis, this Gentile area, Jesus meets a woman who is outside of God's people and is graciously included and brought in close. And then finally, they cross the water and they enter into a Gentile area. And I hope that that story sounds familiar to you. Like, I, <laughs> I hope that, man, you go, that sounds a whole lot like the story of Exodus. That sounds a whole lot like Joseph getting kicked out and sold into Egypt by his brothers, the 12 uh, growing into this great family that are blessed by God. Pharaoh responding with violence when he sees how much God is blessing them. The people going out into the wilderness and being miraculously provided for. God coming down on the mountain to Moses and showing him his glory as he passes by. The giving of the law and this being established as a people that follow God's heart. And then ultimately going into the promised land. This is an Exodus story. This is a story that the people of Israel have been telling themselves for thousands, maybe thousands, over a thousand years. It is deep in their being. This is what it looks like when God comes. This is what it looks like when God shows up. When he makes us a people, he rescues us out of slavery, he feeds us, he cares for us, and he makes a place for us. This is the story that's at the heart of what it means to be an Israelite living at the time of Jesus. And the story has been, it is built up more and more as they hear it year after year, year after year, again, 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 every Passover. And it has even more meaning because now suddenly they're back in the land and they're oppressed by the Romans. They're looking and they're saying, God, we need you to show up again. We need a new exodus. We need a new story because this is not how we expected the story to end. We didn't expect to be in the land and not being in charge 
not having God as our king. And so we want to, if we can, hold kind of all of that as the background as we look at chapter 8. Because I believe that Jesus and Mark are intentionally working to show us that God is coming back. They're intentionally shaping this as a new Exodus story. And all of the the confusion and the conflict that comes up in chapter 8 is because Jesus has placed himself at the center of this story and because the ending doesn't match their expectations. And so we come back to chapter 8. Jesus has entered back into the area of the Decapolis. It's a Gentile-controlled area. Um, There's a very clear divide. There's this lake that exists between the Jewish area, the people of God, and the Gentile area, the Roman area, the people that are outside. And if we're following the Exodus story, what happens when the people cross over the water and enter into the promised land? They conquer, right? The Gentiles are put in their place. The Israelites are given a place to live on their own. And so I want to argue that the disciples are not confused about Jesus' ability to reproduce a bunch of pieces of bread and pieces of fish. That, that is not at the heart of their confusion right now. Deep in every human being, there is a story, and we are driven by it. And there is an end that we're expecting. And if we're given facts that don't match up to that story, we just ignore them. And we, we, we tell ourselves a new version of our story where those facts don't matter. And so the disciples say, how in the world are we going to feed all these people? These people, right? Because if Jesus is, issue, is bringing in a new exodus, a new freedom for his people, the Gentiles don't have a place. The people of God have already been fed. Jesus already fed the 5,000. We don't need this to happen again. It's already been done. And Jesus says, I want to show you a new story. I want to show you a new way. I want to show you what it looks like when God comes back. When God rescues. And so what Jesus sees when he comes is he looks out at these people that have been with him for three days. They have nothing to eat. They're in a desolate place. Um, When he feeds the 5,000, the disciples say, if only we had a ton of money, we could feed these people. This time, this time they don't even say, they're just like, this place is so bad, there's no way we're going to feed them. There's nothing we can do. And Jesus sees that. He looks and he sees these people are desperate. And he has compassion on them. When God comes, what he sees 
is our desperate need for him. And what he feels is compassion. And that is the exact same story of when he fed the 5,000. It's the exact same story of when he feeds the 4,000. It does not matter which group of people they belong to. It doesn't matter their background. It doesn't matter what they've done. Jesus sees their desperate need. And he knows that he has come to rescue them, to nourish them, to feed them, to bring them into the family of God. Ephesians says it like this, that he came to preach peace to those that were far off and to those that were near. When God comes back, when he begins his new exodus, his new plan of salvation, he sees people in desperate need and he provides and he rescues no matter what. And so, just like we had in the other story, they find out they've got some bread, they've got some fish. Jesus breaks them, he gives thanks for them, he blesses them, and he serves them, and the 4,000 people are fed, and they have leftovers galore. Um, And it's incredible. Uh, It's incredible that God chooses to do this. Um, Two weeks ago, we had the story of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus, and her expectation is that she's going to be treated like a Gentile dog. And she answers that even the dogs get to have scraps at the table. And there's this playfulness between Jesus and the woman that because of her answer, because she's willing to come to the table, she gets included and brought in. But Jesus says, that's not actually how I see you. That's not actually what it looks like when God feeds, when God provides. It's not scraps at the table. I want to say, I, I, there's, there's people in this room today that think, I'm just going to get scraps. That's all I deserve. If you know what I've done, if you know where I've been, you're thinking, I might just get some scraps. Jesus says, there is an abundance of grace for you. There is so much grace for you that it's going to overflow and there's going to be leftovers for everyone. So Jesus is, is issuing, entering into this new exodus and freeing people, providing. He says, This is what it looks like when God comes back. And at the heart of that is Jesus himself. He says, when God comes back, I come. God sent me to do this. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Paul says it this way, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and it was the Father's good pleasure for all his fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. 
in Jesus, we see what it looks like when God comes back to rescue. If Jesus is changing what the story looks like, that means there's going to be opposition. There are going to be people who are invested in different versions of this story. And so immediately after he's done this, he sails back to the other side and he's met by the Pharisees. Like it feels like he doesn't even get a chance to get out of the boat. And the Pharisees say, explain yourself. Why are you doing this? This is not the way the story is supposed to go. The story ends with us on top and everybody else getting scraps, maybe. And so they say, give us a sign. And you know, I, I think it's easy to read this and just go, he just fed 4,000 people. Like, that's a huge sign. But that's actually the thing that the Pharisees are so upset about. Is that he would do something that includes people outside of the people of God in an intimate way, just like God would do for the people of Israel, right? That's the problem itself. Um, And so what they're asking is, give us proof that God has actually sent you. Give us proof that this is actually what God is up to. And this goes back um, to Deuteronomy um, and Moses. um, As Moses is preparing to not enter the promised land with the people of God, he tells the people, God will raise up a prophet like me from among you. And then he goes on to tell them, if this prophet speaks or does anything that's out of line from what I've done, you don't have to listen to him. And the book of Deuteronomy itself ends with this saying, there has not yet been a prophet that's risen up and done the signs that Moses did. There hasn't been somebody yet that's risen up and had the backing of God to rescue and to save And so what the Pharisees are asking is, you're saying you're doing this new Exodus thing. Where's the proof? Where is it? And Jesus sighs. He says, why do you look for a sign? No sign will be given. Which I think is incredible because if you... you, If you look back at the last two chapters, if you look back at everything that Jesus has done, the sign is right there. He is coming as the Lord to rescue his people out of slavery and out of bondage. And the issue is not that he's not giving a sign, but that the Pharisees can't see it. And I I don't want to put too much into this, um, but in the book of Mark, Jesus only sighs twice. Okay, like that's, I feel like that's a really like kind of cheesy like preacher thing to say. Um, but we actually saw it um, two weeks ago. Um, it's when the, the, the people bring the man to him who is mute and deaf. 
and he sighs deeply, and then he opens um, his ears, and he opens his mouth. And I think if the, the Syrophoenician woman is the precursor to what Jesus is going to do in feeding the 4,000, I think this man is the precursor to the Pharisees, who his physical symptoms were that he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. And Jesus can work with that. But the Pharisees come and they have a spiritual sickness where they cannot hear and they cannot understand and they cannot speak. Um, despite the fact that again and again and again, Jesus has declared himself and shown himself to be the one sent by God to rescue and to save. All right. Finally, they get in the boat again, um, and the disciples forget bread. I don't, I don't know what they did with the baskets full of bread. I guess they were, it was too much and it didn't fit on the boat. Anyways, they forgot bread. And Jesus tells them after this encounter with the Pharisees, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Um, and this really kind of completes our Exodus picture. If the disciples are the ones that are going out from slavery, if they're the ones that are going out to be the new people of God, they can't carry any leaven with them. There's no time. Right? The night is short. They've got to get out of Egypt. There's no time for leaven. And so the leaven of the Pharisees is just what we've seen, is that they want to have the story with themselves at the center. They want to have the story that says, we know what's going on. We are the means to bring salvation to ourselves if we just obey the right way, if we just live the right way, if we just teach the right things, that there is a story that brings about salvation that doesn't require Jesus to show up. And that, the people of God can never be made, they can never be established, they can never be rescued. There is no salvation in a story that says we can save ourselves apart from Jesus at the center. And the same with Herod. Um, I don't know, Herod's is maybe even worse. Herod just says, I'm just going to live just like the world, and the more power I have, the more comfortable I'm going to live. And so I definitely don't need Jesus because he's weak, and I've already killed John. Uh, I'll just I'll kill, Jerry, I'll kill Jesus next if I need to. And so, like, there's this, there's this story that says, actually, by my own strength, I can provide and take care of myself. And again, there's no place. There's no place for that in the kingdom of God. That we are called to follow the way of the cross, to follow the way of our Savior that lays down his life, who suffers and dies so that he can raise again and raise us with him. And the disciples are, are arguing over bread. And Jesus says, why, why, why are you asking about bread? Don't you remember? Don't you remember when I fed the 5,000 people? Don't you remember that I just fed 
the 4,000 people. But more than that, do you have the same spiritual sickness that you can't see who I am? That you can't see what I'm really doing? Because it's not about the bread. It's not about feeding. It's about Jesus coming in and rewriting the story and saying, I want to save everyone. I see their desperate need. I've seen the way people have split themselves up into groups and say, we're in and they're out. He says, I want to break down all those walls and I want to rescue. And the way that I show that, the way that I show that God has come back to save is by feeding and by nourishing everyone that I see and having compassion on everyone in a desperate place. And can't you guys see it yet? Can you understand? And the good news is, is that they get it, right? Um, it doesn't happen yet. But I, I know that there is, a, there is a process, and some of it is just this miraculous. Uh, Jesus tells Peter, when Peter declares him to be the Christ, that flesh and bone didn't reveal this to you. The Holy Spirit revealed this to you. And so there is a sense in which we have seen this, we've heard it, we've read the stories. I hope that this morning that there's been a deeper level of seeing Jesus as the one that comes to rescue. But I also pray that there would be a real sense that the Spirit would come and open our eyes more and more in those places where we just kind of see in a fuzzy way that he would open and heal those places and that we would see truly our king and our rescuer. Um, and that re- leads us into, we've just got a couple of kind of application questions that we can reflect on um, as we go into a time of worship. Um, and the first is, who do you say that Jesus is? When you look at your life, Who is Jesus to you? Is he something that just kind of hangs out on the side? That you run to when you're in trouble? Is he something that you hope for? Is he the one that comes and saves? And I think more importantly even than who do we say that Jesus is, is have you been fed by him? Have you had that experience of him coming and seeing your desperate place and loving you in it and offering food that gives life eternally and gives you a place in the kingdom? If you don't, if you don't know that Jesus, this morning, it's time. Like, this morning, Jesus wants to open eyes. He wants to feed. He wants to save, and he wants to rescue. He is here to meet you. I think for those of us um, that know Jesus, that are in, I think it's always a good opportunity to ask ourselves, is Jesus at the center of our story? 
we know Jesus, we love him, we recognize the need for him to come and transform the way we live, but sometimes we ask him to just kind of stand maybe just a little bit off to the side because really I think that I can rescue myself. Really, I think with my own power and willpower and strength and duty and obedience that I can, that I can rescue and be okay. Jesus says, I want to come right into the center of all of that. I want to change the ending to your story. You're expecting it to go one way. I want to come and show up and do something radically different that is so much bigger, so much better, so much grander for the kingdom than you can ever imagine. And then, just like in Jesus, there are stories that compete with his. Every day, you're going to encounter something that says you can live without Jesus at the center of your life. Every single day. Um, sometimes it's going to be, uh, if I just had a better job, if I just had more money, if I just had a better spouse, uh, if I just, <laughs> that's not my story. <laughs> just to clarify, um, if I just had a spouse in general, um, like, it, there are so many stories that you're going to come up with and say, that will come up and tell you, I can give you what you need without Jesus. Um, and I, I want to tread a little lightly into this because everybody in this room, there is an American story that eats at our hearts. Uh, and this is not, like, I don't want to bash on it. Um, but there is a story that says, America is the means by which the world is going to continue to get better and better and better until the world is rescued. And that story is not true. It's not biblical. Um, there is absolutely no story that ends um, in rescue through worldly power, only in Jesus. Um, I think Maybe even worse than that is that that story of America gets split up and groups grab onto it and they actually say, we are the ones that know what America is supposed to look like and we are the ones that are going to fix America so that America can fix the world. And then they fight amongst themselves because their hope is in this power and not in Jesus. And so I think anytime we're evaluating it, the things we can ask ourselves when we come up against these competing stories is, is Jesus at the center? And do these stories split people in two? Do these stories cause division? Because if they do, Jesus is not at the center. Because Jesus comes to bring peace to those that are far off and peace to those that are near. And so we always want to be asking ourselves, when we find ourselves in that place of division and, and 
us versus them saying, where is it that Jesus needs to feed and nurture me so that I can recenter my life on him and my place in his kingdom? And then where can I have compassion for the people that I see on the other side? Because what Jesus sees is people in desperate need of compassion and love and care. And so if we're following him, what we need to look at and catch ourselves, when we feel that split growing, we can say, Jesus, I want to be like you, and I want to have compassion and bring peace and bring your love and your healing into this situation. It has been an honor to share this morning with you guys, um, an honor to talk about our King Jesus. Uh, I'm going to invite the band back up. Um, we're going to have an opportunity to respond. Um, I am blown away by the fact that we have a God that comes down. He doesn't stay far away. He's not far off. And when he comes, he doesn't come in anger. He doesn't come in judgment. He comes in love and compassion, and he sees us exactly where we are. He knows every one of our needs, and he says, son, daughter, I want to love you where you're at. I want to extend grace to you where you're at and bring you into a better place, out of that desolate place, out of that place where there's no hope, where there's no food, where there's no life, and bring you into my kingdom. Jesus, we just want to worship you this morning. We want to declare that you are our everything. You are at the center of our lives. And God, we confess that there are times when we wander. There are times when we put other things in the center. Jesus, we just want to come back to you. Because there's no one else that has life. There's no one else that has hope. There's no one else who can offer an end to our story. Where we have life and abundance and peace except in your name. Jesus, we love you. And we pray all these things in the power of your mighty name. Amen.